Warning! Binge mode contains adult content. That's right. Have you ever walked into a classroom and saw almost SNM-like pictures displaying the ways the dark arts can be used against you? That might happen to you if you walk into Snape's Defense Against the Dark Arts class. So if that's not the kind of thing you're into, may I suggest Herbology or one of the other podcasts in the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why Hermione's confiscating fanged frisbees from the fourth years, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. Well, I have decided that it is time. Now that you know what prompted Lord Voldemort to try and kill you 15 years ago, for you to be given certain information. There was a pause. You said at the end of last term you were going to tell me everything, said Harry. It was hard to keep a note of accusation from his voice. Sir, he added. Hmm, so I did, said Dumbledore placidly. I told you everything I know. From this point forth, we shall be leaving the firm foundation of fact and journeying together through the murky marshes of memory into thickets of wildest guesswork. From here on in, Harry, I may be as woefully wrong as Humphrey Belcher, who believed the time was ripe for a cheese cauldron. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Allie Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Yes, what a great website. Love it. Joining me today, now that he's finished helpfully confunding the other host who almost beat me out for this podcast. I mean, you gotta get your hands dirty sometimes. It's Ringer Senior Creative. Yes. Your headmaster. Withered hand and all, Jason Concepcion. Mal. Oh, all right then, I did it. Thank because you. it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet the Harry Potter universe, whether you smell fresh mown grass or something flowery. When the love potion hits your nostrils, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, take your shriveled hand and rate and review us. Five points, five stars for Binge Mode. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore end. Join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, and which is an excellent place. Find some black market Felix Felices to satiate your desires. Take only in moderate doses. Yesterday on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how allegiance shapes chapters three through seven of Half-Blood Prince. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters eight through 11. Mm. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Yeah. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we see the snake nailed to the door. So staunch the flow from your leaky nose, because it's time to head to the House of Gaunt. Mal. 50 points from binge mode for the lateness, I think. And let me see, another 20 for your muggle attire. Oh, boy. You know, I don't believe any podcast has ever been in negative figures this early in the episode. We haven't even started the plot points yet. You might have set a record, Ruben. So let's start earning some points back by offering up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Prince Chapters 8 to 11 
by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine plot the Hogwarts Express. After Tonks rescues and incapacitated Harry from the train, he heads to the Great Hall for the welcome feast, where he learns to his horror that Snape will be taking over as defense against the Dark Arts Professor with our new friend Horace Slughorn assuming the post of Potions Master. Before he starts his lessons the next day, he learns from McGonagall that this switch means he can take potions. Soft grater, that Slughorn. <laughs> and continue his dreams of becoming an Auror. But without the proper supplies, he's going to have to borrow a book. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Ginevra's head whips around. <laughs> Great news. He borrows an old textbook from Slughorn. And the former owner, called the Half-Blood Prince, was a fucking genius. And helps Harry impress Slughorn and win a vial of Felix Felicis, a.k.a. Liquid Luck. Turns out those textbooks are wrong a lot of the times. <laughs> <laughs> Harry also attends his first private lesson with Dumbledore, where he learns mm. via pensive memory about Voldemort's ancestry. Wow. And he holds Quidditch tryouts, where Ron wins the keeper <laughs> spot after a bit of skullduggery from Hermione. At least my happiness doesn't depend on Ron's goalkeeping ability, Granger. Tough look for our girl. I mean, it's legitimate cheating. A little light cheating. It for sure is cheating. <laughs> Jason. Yes. Binge mode is many, varied, ever-changing, and eternal. Fighting it is like fighting a many-headed monster, which, each time a neck is severed, sprouts a head even fiercer and cleverer than before. You are fighting that which is unfixed, mutating, indestructible, often overly long. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 8 through 11 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince is tutelage. Chapter 8. Snape victorious. Harry's frozen, helpless, trapped under his own cloak, his blood flowing over his face. He's full of hatred toward Malfoy, but also mm -hmm. fury with himself. Quote, what a stupid situation to have landed himself in. Harry, my boy, that's what we were saying to you last Harry episode. Harry, my boy. <laughs> Harry has always been a free and independent thinker, but when he acts unilaterally without seeking or heeding counsel, he sometimes strays. And as he sits alone, trying and failing to reach his own wand or even make a sound, certain that he's about to zoom back to London, undetected, he hears, quote, no hint of a search being made or even... He despised himself slightly for hoping it, panicked voices wondering where Harry Potter had gone. This is a pretty remarkable line, a pretty remarkable moment of introspection. Harry so often laments his on-stage existence, the visibility and burdens that come from fame he never asked for, the inability to even walk down the corridor of the train, absent, ceaseless stares. But he also knows what life in the spotlight has given him. He's in this situation not because a foe outsmarted him, but because he outsmarted himself by entering the serpent's nest without the safety net of friends or teachers. Remember the infamous words we heard in chapter one. The trouble is, the other side can do magic too. Mm -hmm. Same goes here for Harry and the people he's facing. Magic alone isn't a path to victory. Our choices and our alliances are. Just as the train lurches to life and shifts Harry to his side, his cloak is pulled off and he hears... Tonks's voice, say, her trademark watcher, Harry, as she unfreezes him. Together they jump off the train as it gathers steam. From the book, Tonks was looking at him. He felt angry and embarrassed that he had been discovered in such a ridiculous position. Looking back, 
He notices that she seems just as miserable as she did at the bar. Really let herself go, as Fleur would say, as Flem would say. She offers to fix his nose, and despite his private concerns about her ability to do so, conducts the healing spell with a plum. Harry out here just judging people because, what do you think? Come on, she's an aura. She's, she's a like fucking aura, She's Harry. an experienced witch. What are you worried about? <laughs> <laughs> That's an unbelievable oh, move by man. my guy. Tonks may be clumsy, but she's an or. An or, Harry. <laughs> she instructs Harry to hide under his cloak as they make their way to the castle on foot, then sends, quote, an immense silvery four-legged creature off. Harry asks if it's a Patronus. It is. Of course it is. What did you think it was? Harry? <laughs> she's using it to send word to the castle that he's in her care. Harry reflects that he's seen Dumbledore send a message like this, remember, to Hagrid back in Goblet after finding Crumb stunned and Barty Sr. missing. This is, of course, also what Dumbledore referenced when he said the Order had, quote, more reliable methods of communicating than the fire in Dolores Umbridge's office. <laughs> oh, was that bad? <laughs> Harry, as we know, is a Patronus casting prodigy. He can get that full out at a moment's notice. <laughs> he didn't earn the nickname Patronus Potter from Lucius for nothing. Also, great nickname. So good. <laughs> Lucy is just out here giving great nicknames. <laughs> so good. It's hard, again, seeing this method in action now armed with additional insight about what exactly happened here, not to lament Harry's lack of prior knowledge about this method of magical communication. If only Dumbledore had taught him, and he could have sent a Patronus to Sirius at Grimald Place instead, or just open that package Sirius gave you, maybe. Or that. <laughs> or that. Tonks, we learn is one of the Aurors stationed at Hogsmeade, providing extra protection for the village and for the school. She noticed that Harry didn't get off the train and then, thinking of his cloak, spotted the drawn blinds of the compartment in question and found him. Truly impressive detective work. Again, Tonks is good. Tonks is an Auror. As they walk, Harry notices that Tonks, previously so inquisitive and bubbly, seems, quote, older and much more serious and purposeful. Hermione's words about serious and the Ministry and Tonks's probable survivor's guilt are in his mind, but he can't bring himself to speak any words of comfort or any words about Sirius at all. Harry's Sirius-centric candor with Dumbledore in the shed by the burrow was really a remarkable thing, a sign of his increasing comfort with the headmaster. Here, Tonks and Harry reach the gates, but they're locked. Not even uh -oh. Harry's Alohomora attempt bears fruit. He's like, I got this. It'll be Watch fun. this, this be Tonks. <laughs> <laughs> We're already seeing some of what this new security looks like. Tonk says that won't work on these. Dumbledore bewitched them himself. Yes. A 16-year-old with a Loomora cannot break into the <laughs> castle. I'm sorry. A 16-year-old with a vanishing cabinet can, though. Yes. Harry charmingly says, I, I could climb a wall, I guess. Should I climb a wall? <laughs> <laughs> and then Tonk says, no, you couldn't. Anti-intruder jinxes on all of them. Security's been tightened a hundredfold this summer. And then Harry hears a little tiny bit of his Order of the Phoenix angst bubbling back to the surface quickly feels annoyed that Tonks only appears prepared to point out problems, not offer solutions. He is used, of course, to being surrounded by Magical geniuses, yeah. innovators, yeah. people who always have an answer, like Hermione, like Dumbledore, even like Sirius, even the twins. Someone who always has a fix in mind. But fear not, Harry, my boy. Someone's coming to fetch you. Unfortunately, that someone is your least favorite person in the universe. <laughs> Severus Snape, who wastes no time going in on Harry for his lateness and, in Snape's mind, attention-seeking arrival. Which, aside... 
This is a terrible look for Snape because Harry, as Hermione will note when he meets up with his friends after this meeting, is covered in blood. blood. (laughs) So it's not like Harry's just wandering in off the street a little late. Oh, guys, you know, I lost track of time. The dude is covered in blood. (laughs) And Snape's just like, ah, seeking attention again. Get the fuck out of here. Tonk says that she meant for Hagrid to get the message, and though we don't know whether this is because she mistrusts Snape or because she and all Order members know that Harry and Snape mix about as well as oil and water, her disappointment and concern register, building on the anxiety we already feel at this point after what we witnessed in Spinner's End. Mm -hmm. This tension builds when Snape comments on Tonks' Patronus. I was interested to see your new Patronus, (laughs) he says, adding after the shutting the gate in her face and with quote, malice in his voice, saying that, I think you were better off with the old one. The new one looks weak. It's fucking brutal stuff. Savage. Snape and Tonks are supposed to be on the same side, and though we've seen from Harry and Snape and Sirius and Snape and Lupin and Snape and so on, that being on the same side doesn't necessarily mean liking each other. Uh This is savage, stunning stuff. Tonks is clearly hurt with Harry noticing shock and anger on her face. We'll learn in time that Tonks' Patronus has taken on Lupin's werewolf form. And so this shot from Snape is both an attack on Tonks's emotions or feelings and on Lupin himself. Harry doesn't know this yet, but what he's observing further guides his fury towards Snape. As they walk, Harry thinks that Snape surely must be able to feel the hatred radiating off of him. Quote, he had loathed Snape from their first encounter, but Snape had placed himself forever and irrevocably beyond the possibility of Harry's forgiveness by his attitude towards Sirius. Now, this will obviously prove to be false in the end. Harry will go about as far in the other direction as it's possible to go, eventually naming his second son after Snape and Dumbledore. But Harry's nearly two full books away from enlightenment. And though the through line of this book, the very title of this book, in fact, is Snape's ever-present tutelage of Harry, even when neither of them realizes that it's happening, mm-hmm. all Harry feels now is resentment. Blaming Snape for Sirius's death satisfies Harry. It allows him to channel his own guilt towards someone he knows isn't sorry that Sirius is gone. Snape keeps goading Harry, stripping away points, mocking his penchant for headline-grabbing entrances. And Harry knows that Snape came to fetch him just for this, for the savage pleasure of bullying him in private. Snape's last bit of torment is to forbid Harry from entering the hall wearing his invisibility cloak. And so as Harry makes his way across to the Gryffindor table, students stand to get a look at him. Now, they'd want a peek at the Chosen One regardless, but as we soon learn from Ron and Hermione, blimey, what have you done to your face? Yes. (laughs) Helpful, Ron. Yes. Tonks' expert nose-mending didn't remove the evidence of the carnage. Harry is covered in blood, as we just said. He shirks off Hermione's questioning, hoping that observers will, quote, assume he had been involved in something heroic, (laughs) preferably involving a couple of Death Eaters and a Dementor. But shortly thereafter, he sees Malfoy miming his nose-shattering attack for the Slytherin's benefit. When Dumbledore rises to address the students, his withered hand causes quite a stir. Quite a stir. As one does when they have a withered, blackened hand. (laughs) Harry tells Hermione that it was like that over the summer and that he was sure the headmaster would have cured it by now. Uh Uh Uh-oh. Dumbledore is famously a genius, incredibly powerful, and if this hasn't healed on its own and he hasn't found a way to, it must be quite uncommon and quite serious. Hermione, always a scholar, knows that not all magical ills have cures. Uh She says, it looks as if it's died. (laughs) Hermione, with a nauseated expression, 
But there are some injuries you can't cure, old curses, and there are poisons without antidotes. We'll see in the cave how true that last part is. The description from Hermione describes what we'll come to understand about the protections around two of Voldemort's horcruxes, which is perspective worth maintaining, as dismaying as Dumbledore's injury is, both in the here and now and when it makes him seem fallible and mortal, and in the end game, when we come to understand that it stemmed not from Voldemort's superior magic, but from Dumbledore's own vulnerability to temptation, it's also a useful tool, a firsthand woof, encounter. <laughs> that the defenses around one of Voldemort's horcruxes that primed Dumbledore for what he and Harry would come to face. Yes. Harry, of course, has killed a horcrux and its defenses too, though he didn't know it at the time when he drove the basilisk fang through Riddle's diary. It's good friend Tom's diary. Harry's yet to have his first lesson with Dumbledore, but they've both actually already begun training for the ultimate hunt. Dumbledore quickly gives the assembled something to focus on other than his rotting flesh. Slughorn's intro and the ensuing reveal that he'll be teaching, drumroll please, potions. This was a true oh shit moment upon first read, a really magnificent twist that sets us on our heels for what's to come in the rest of the book, because the ensuing reveal hits Harry and co. damn near as hard as Big Baby Grop. Yeah. Quote, Professor Snape, meanwhile, said Dumbledore, raising his voice so that it carried over all the muttering, will be taking over the position of defense against the dark arts. No, said Harry so loudly that many heads turned in his direction. Iconic moment for our guy. Harry is enraged. He's confounded. Dumbledore's refusal to give Snape the post for years has been the school's worst kept secret. And listen, that is saying something really because is. nobody can keep a secret. No so the bar is very high for worst kept secret. There's no secrets at Hogwarts. <laughs> what has changed? Well, Harry can't know the answer here. But what's changed is Dumbledore's life status. We will learn in The Prince's Tale that he and Snape both, since the beginning of this book, have known that Dumbledore has less than a year to live and have agreed, given their knowledge of Voldemort's Draco-centric Dumbledore assassination plot, that Snape should kill Dumbledore instead. It doesn't matter if the curse on the defense against the dark arts position only leaves things stable for a year. Everything's going to change in a year anyway. Plus, as we will learn... Dumbledore needs Slughorn's Tom Riddle memory, and Sluggy is a potions master. It's a slideboard puzzle of a plan, and the picture is starting to take shape. For Harry, though, that kind of clarity is eons away. He's left with the sinking feeling that his favorite subject, the one at which he has excelled, the one that he has taught to so many other people, yes. allowing them to excel, the one that has quite literally kept him alive, will now be his nemesis's domain. Tough stuff. Hermione's like, my guy, you told us Sluggy was teaching defense. <laughs> Quote, I thought he was, said Harry, racking his brain to remember, <laughs> to remember when Dumbledore had told him this. Harry, like, Dumbledore's only told you three things ever. You'd remember. I but love it. <laughs> I honestly love it. You'd it's remember. like, it's Dumbledore's Short list. <laughs> it's looking great. <laughs> but now that he came to think of it, he was unable to recall Dumbledore ever telling him what Slughorn would be teaching. J.K. Rowling, of course played on and subverted the audience's same built-in expectation, the same one that Harry has, the one that five prior books of new Defense Against the Dark Arts hires has trained us for. Quote, Well, there's one good thing, he said savagely, he being Harry here. Snape will be gone by the end of the year. What do you mean, asked Ron. That job's jinxed. No one's lasted more than a year. Savage stuff coming from Harry here. 
Quirrell actually died doing it. Personally, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for another death. So Harry has taken a fucking dark turn. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Harry's rage here is frankly alarming. Mm-hmm. The kind of blinding, corrosive hate that actually poisons a person from within. The product of truly resenting seeing that Snape has, quote, achieved his heart's desire, and also of lamenting that the sanctity of Defense Against the Dark Arts lessons will be deprived to him yet again. Because, of course, it's not like defense lessons were so great last year. Yeah. Heard of Dolores Umbridge? And the year before that, by the way, he was taught by a Death Eater. Who did a pretty good job. He taught him a lot. (laughs) He taught him a lot. (laughs) And then, of course, if we go two years back behind that, Gilderoy. Let me wipe your memory and steal your very, story, Lockhart. Very tough and stuff. And then, look, we'd be remiss if we didn't note that Harry's first year of Voldemort was sticking out of the back of Quirrell's head. Harry here does not consider, even for a moment, what Snape, who is a seasoned spy, a former Death Eater, a current crucial member of the Order of the Phoenix, an occlumency expert, as we know, might have to teach him. He just bemoans that he has to consider Snape at all. After Dumbledore warns the students of the dangers facing them this year and implores them to practice caution and sense, the throngs exit. Harry tells Ron about his nose from the book. It was a mark of the strength of their friendship that Ron did not laugh. Harry's less impressed by Ron's reaction to what Harry overheard Malfoy saying. Come on, Harry. He was just showing off for Parkinson. You know, he loves those hand jobs. <laughs> Soft palms of pansy Parkinson. Ron's still stubbornly insisting that Voldemort wouldn't need Malfoy for anything. But Harry, again, rightly notes that needing someone at Hogwarts seems pretty logical. Why can't other people see it? Well, people have blind spots, including our guy Hagrid, who in a heartbreaking exchange to end the chapter catches up Harry and Ron on Grop's new mountainside digs and tells them that he'll see them bright and early. Hey, guys. At tomorrow's first Care of Magical Creatures lesson. Can't wait to see you. Right? Everybody excited? Okay. (laughs) Only none of Harry, Ron, or Hermione is planning to continue with the class. Tough stuff. Choosing to forego Hagrid's tutelage in favor of eliminating the prospect of a run-in. The blast ended screw. Very tough stuff. Chapter 9, The Half-Blood Prince. With their owls in, our friends are beginning their newt level course load. One wrinkle, as we said. What are we going to do about care of magical creatures, guys? Harry, Ron, and Hermione are obviously extremely fond of Hagrid. Uh He's been a fierce and protective friend to them, and his willingness basically from the jump to open his home to them has been an important and underrated influence on their school careers. He is a sweetheart and incredibly useful in a fight. Yes. Is he a good teacher? Well, He's a really wonderful guy, mm-hmm. as we said. Passionate about his subject. Pas- incredibly passionate, <laughs> which is important. So let's leave it there. And while our friends were introduced to Bowtruckles, Hippogriffs, and Thestrals under Hagrid's tutelage, the subject itself leaves them pretty cold, which we must say, we find a little baffling. This seems like a really fun class. I just don't get it. I know. Nobody wants to continue to learn about these amazing magical creatures. Is this why Newt had to go right? Fantastic Beast somewhere to find them in the first place because he's the only person on Earth who cares? I don't understand. Very strange. I would love to learn about these creatures. I know. From the book. But he can't really think we'd continue care of magical creatures, Hermione said, looking distressed. I mean, when has any of us expressed, you know, any enthusiasm? Ron essentially admits that they only made an effort (laughs) in care because they liked Hagrid personally, which is (laughs) fucking brutal. And with the owls done, the chances of anyone in there you're progressing to newt level in the class is basically zero. 
Uh-huh. From the book, they avoided Hagrid's eye and returned his cheery wave only half-heartedly when he left the <laughs> staff table 10 minutes later. As we say here on the pod, tough stuff. Extremely tough stuff. What about the rest of their course load? That will be determined by owl grades. Put the war and its oppressive drumbeat of tragedy aside for one moment here. This should be an exhilarating time in their lives. After five years, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are on the edge of adulthood. Listen, some of them might be more than on the edge. <laughs> it's like, Let's ask Hermione and pick the dick about that. They're at just the tip of adulthood. <laughs> Found myself thinking about the book jacket for Half-Blood Prince and reading it for the first time. This blurb in particular. And yet, as in all wars... Life goes on. The Weasley twins expand their business. Sixth-year students learn to apparate and lose a few eyebrows in the process. Teenagers flirt and fight and fall in love. There is a life outside of war, right? There has to be. Otherwise, what are any of us fighting for? And pursuing their careers, thinking about their education, that's part of it. When they choose their classes this year, it will be with one eye, gazing out into the undiscovered country of their future careers. After breakfast, Professor McGonagall shepherds her Gryffindors through the process of selecting their classes. Hermione, who of course crushed her studies, 10 owls, 9 outstandings, 1 exceeds expectations, is cleared to proceed to newt level in charms, defense against the dark arts, transfiguration, herbology, arithmancy, ancient runes, and potions. Neville is cleared for herbology with an O, shouts to you, Neville, and defense against the dark arts with an E, Shouts to Harry, who is clearly quite a teacher here. Unfortunately, Neville's owl in Transfiguration. McGonagall's subject was merely acceptable, and she notes, that's not going to cut it. Not she at all. She can't take Neville into her new level class. However, he did get an E in Charms. Quote, why do you want to continue with Transfiguration anyway? I've never had the impression that you particularly enjoyed it. And she's not being mean-spirited at all. She's making just a real-talk observation here. Neville says it's what Gran wants, of course. McGonagall just fucking owning it here. Quote, it's high time your grandmother learned to be proud of the grandson she's got rather than the one she thinks she ought to have, particularly after what happened at the ministry. The passage continues. Neville turned very pink and blinked confusedly. Professor McGonagall had never paid him a compliment before. This is a really important moment here. Mm-hmm. McGonagall and Neville have never quite flourished together in the Transfiguration classroom, but McGonagall is showing us here how many other ways there are to encourage and mold the people in our lives. Gran, we learn from Neville here, thinks Charms is a, quote, soft option. It's tough. McGonagall, again, not here for this bullshit. Take Charms, said Professor McGonagall. She's flexing, she's dunking extremely hard here. And I shall drop Augusta a line reminding her that just because she failed her Charms out, the subject is not necessarily worthless. Neville has come into his own of late. And a lot of that has to do with his deepening friendship with Harry, with Ron, with Hermione. Getting to know people like Luna, the camaraderie and the tutelage that he received in the DA meetings. His parents' torturer's escape from prison filled him with a new and propulsive rage, a desire to seek revenge. And the DA lessons helped him build his confidence so that he could channel that desire for vengeance productively. He acquitted himself wonderfully at the ministry. He really did. However, his gran is the biggest influence, the biggest presence in his life. Her constant remonstrations about what Neville's parents would and wouldn't do, what would and wouldn't make them proud, 
While certainly very touching and undeniably motivated by love, we want to be clear about that. This all comes from a place of love. Are also an intense source of anxiety for Neville. It's a pressure to live up to something that he can't and shouldn't have to. Having lost her son, Neville's father, Frank, Grant is trying, maybe even only subconsciously, to relive his life through her grandson. She has expressed newfound pride in Neville after his heroics at the ministry, but even that praise is colored by how Neville compares to his parents. And McGonagall, having taught generations of students, understands this and understands the power of helping her students discover not how to live up to someone else's expectations, but how to find and follow through on their own. Shortly, it's Harry's turn. He has down charms, defense, Mm -hmm. herbology, and transfiguration, exam grade for which particularly pleases McGonagall. Great moment. All fine. Why, though, she wonders, has Harry not chosen to continue with potions? Mm. I thought it was your ambition to become an auror, she says. (laughs) Wait, Harry says, didn't you tell me that I would need an outstanding to continue to newt level? Snape is kind of a stickler about such things we all know from the book. And so you did. When Professor Snape was teaching the subject, Professor Slughorn, however, is perfectly happy to accept newt students with exceeds expectations at OWL. Do you wish to proceed with potions? Just what every student needs as they enter the home stretch of their primary education career. An easy grader. I love it. I love an easy grader. So clutch. I love an easy grader and a teacher that you vibe on a personal level with. It's Harry, great. Harry, my boy. Harry, my boy. Did you bring me a Honeyduke's hamper? <laughs> Wonderful. That's no need to complete your homework. <laughs> 50 points. <laughs> I love it. So good. But hold on. Harry didn't buy books or ingredients. Not a problem. McGonagall tells him that Sluggy will lend him the materials until he can get his own. Setting up the overarching and titular tutelage arc of this book. Yes. The Half-Blood Prince's instructions to Harry Potter. Yes. Oh, and there is something else from the book again. Oh, by the way, (laughs) 20 hopefuls have already put down their names for the Gryffindor Quidditch team. I shall pass the list to you in due course, and you can fix up the trials at your leisure. I shall pass you the list in due course after thoroughly scouting the prospects myself. And cutting those who are not up to snuff. Listen, let's be honest. McGonagall doesn't need to start scouting these kids now. She's been watching their tapes since they were on their toy broomsticks at the age of one. That network has been out there doing the work. You're marking five-star recruits from the day they first rode a broom. Think she's not ready for this? By the way, one more thing on that. Harry getting the captaincy. Instead of Katie yeah, Bell, fucking, seventh year. It's actually corruption. Who has served honorably her house and her team. Honorably with, with blood and sweat. <laughs> Almost bled <laughs> out at practice. Blood, sweat, and tears she has given to this team. Where's her captain? It's honestly shocking. It's shocking stuff. The corruption is uncontainable. And then she has to basically come in later in these chapters and be like, No, you don't just, like, give people a free run at the team. People have to try out. There are standards to be upheld. What are you talking about? Looking at you, Weasel King. God! (laughs) It's unbelievable stuff here. Anyway, then it's Ron's turn to step up and get his course load. Look, said Ron, delightedly gazing at his schedule. 
We've got a free period now and a free period after break and after lunch. Excellent. Oh, one, one. He just wants to play fanged frisbee. Everyone else is like, what about the war? What about my career? And he's just like, listen. I got three free periods plus lunch. (laughs) Meet me in the quad. Our friend's first defense class with Snape is an eye opener. Or should we say a curtain closer? Because Snape, freed from his dungeon classroom, has found a way to go full goth. Quote, it was gloomier than usual as curtains had been drawn over the windows and was lit by candlelight. I think this sounds nice, personally. <laughs> it's the mood lighting. Until this next part. Yeah, this right. sounds less nice. New pictures adorn the walls, many of them showing people who appeared to be in pain, sporting grisly injuries, or strangely contorted body parts. Snape begins the lesson by commenting on their whirlwind defense studies to date and then shares a little glimpse into his philosophy on the dark arts. And it is clear right away how much time. Yes. How much mental and emotional energy Snape has devoted to this discipline. Quote, the dark arts, said Snape, are many, varied, ever-changing, and eternal. Fighting them is like fighting a many-headed monster, which, each time a neck is severed, sprouts a head even fiercer and cleverer than before. You are fighting that which is unfixed, mutating, indestructible. Therefore, in Snape's view, Defending oneself against the dark arts demands equal fluidity and inventiveness, an ability to respond instinctively to even the most gruesome of attacks, such as the Cruciatus Curse, the Dementor's Kiss. And in theory, Harry is troubled by Snape's seemingly loving tone. Now, Harry is not an unbiased arbiter here. He hates Snape, flat out. He's predisposed to dismiss his tutelage and or parse it for signs of evil, for hints that Snape must really be a Death Eater still, must be unworthy of Dumbledore's trust, and thus, by extension, worthy of Harry's scorn. But to fight the dark arts this way is to be engaged intimately with the goings-on on the dark side. Too intimately, perhaps, for some to be comfortable with. But as Hermione will note to Harry in short order, to be acquainted with them in a way that Harry actually knows and acknowledges, Snape, she'll say, Sounds like Harry. And Harry will find himself thinking in these terms later in the book at Dumbledore's funeral when he recalls Dumbledore's words about fighting and fighting again. That idea of the eternal fight, Mm -hmm. the many-headed monster, a new head always sprouting. Dumbledore, Harry, and Snape, they all speak this way. Harry is rebelling here against the messenger, not the message. But he's so determined to find fault with Snape that he's losing sight of himself a little bit here. And it is true. But Snape's approach, including the grisly pictures, pulls no punches. It's one of the elemental calculations of tutelage, mentorship, parenting. How much of the world's dangers should you expose your charges to? And when does the natural instinct to shelter and protect young people actually begin to hurt them by depriving them of a clear picture of reality, no matter how dark? Immediately, Snape shows how much he does have to teach them. And his first lesson is an important and quite advanced one. Nonverbal spells. Yes. The utility of casting spells without shouting and incantation is obvious, at least to Hermione. Your adversary has no warning about what kind of magic you're about to perform, which gives you a split-second advantage, Hermione says when Snape finally calls on her. Of course, Goodwill Severus has to shit on Hermione's answer, noting that it comes verbatim from the standard book of spells, grade six. (laughs) But yes, she's correct. It's also, as we previously mentioned, an advanced technique from the book. Not all wizards can do this, of course. It is a question of concentration and mind power, which some 
luck. Snape gazes directly at Harry when he throws that little dagger. Harry knows that Snape is referring to the Occlumency lessons which Snape gave Harry at Dumbledore's request. The sessions were a disaster for many reasons, which we won't rehash, but Snape does have a point. I'll just say I'm happy to rehash them whenever you'd like. We can, we can rehash them. <laughs> they were a fucking disaster. <laughs> but Snape does have a point. There was much Harry could have learned under Snape's tutelage, mm-hmm. unpleasant though that may have been. I would argue that losing your godfather was somewhat more unpleasant. Snape splits the students into pairs, instructing one to try to attack non-verbally and the other to try to repel also non-verbally. Mm-hmm. Harry's really relishing that he taught at least half the class, the shield charm and the DA, albeit verbally. Harry's right to feel proud, as his DA leadership has kept many of his classmates alive. But this is also classic Harry's stubbornness in that he's more focused on how he might be besting Snape than on soaking up Snape's wisdom. Snape's swooping around the class, observing. And when he gets to Harry and Ron, Ron turning colors. Snape chides Ron with a cruel pathetic Weasley, then turns to demonstrate the attack against Harry, who reacts instinctively and verbally. Ah, there's the rub. Protego. His defensive measure is so strong that Snape is thrown backwards, hitting a desk. An absolutely iconic exchange ensues. Do you remember me telling you we are practicing nonverbal spells, Potter? Yes, said Harry stiffly. Yes, sir. There's no need to call me sir, Professor. (laughs) Harry! Man, he's salty. Snape assigns Harry detention, naturally, and on Saturday evening. So Umbridge may be gone, but Harry's defense against the dark arts detention-earning lapses are not. When they exit the lesson, Harry fumes to his friends about Snape's loving verbal caresses. What's Dumbledore playing at, anyway, letting him teach defense? Did you hear him talking about the dark arts? He loves them, all that unfixed, indestructible stuff. And Hermione, as we referenced a moment ago, drops the hammer. Well, said Hermione. I thought he sounded a bit like you. (laughs) Again, it's a good observation. Harry is offended, but she forces him to consider the substance of her point and the similarities that Harry just doesn't want to see. When Harry led the DA, she notes he spoke about how fighting evil wasn't just a matter of memorizing spells. Quote, you said it was just you and your brains and your guts. Well, wasn't that what Snape was saying? That it really comes down to being brave and quick thinking? They are interrupted by Jack sloppy sloper, seeking intel on Quidditch tryouts and bearing a letter for Harry from Dumbledore telling Harry that their first lesson will be that Saturday night when, of course, Harry has just landed himself in detention. Dumbledore's letter ends with, P.S. I enjoy acid pops. What a king. (laughs) Before Harry can really wrestle with Hermione's insight, which is an observant and essential recognition that Harry and Snape, as different as they are, are actually quite aligned in their view of what's required to overcome the darkness. This is a crucial difference to note. Unlike Snape, Harry has never been tempted by the dark side. Mm -hmm. We do feel compelled to remind everyone that Snape was a Death Eater before he came over to Dumbledore's side. But they both know what conquering those forces demands. They could help each other so much if they would only just put their prejudice aside. Slughorn's first potions class is a pleasant and pleasant-smelling surprise. Harry, Ron, and Hermione arrive at the dungeon classroom to find several cauldrons already steaming. They sit from the book nearest a gold-colored cauldron that was emitting one of the most seductive scents Harry had ever inhaled. Somehow it reminded him simultaneously of treacle tart, the woody smell of a broomstick handle, something flowery he thought he might have smelled at the burrow. 
<laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Something flowery named Ginny. <laughs> anyway, Sluggy gets right to business and asks the class to get their textbooks out. But of course, Harry and Ron need a loner. Uh-huh. Ah, yes, Professor McGonagall did mention not to worry, my dear boy. Not to worry at all. You can use ingredients from the store cupboard today. And I'm sure we can lend you some scales, and we've got a small stock of old books here. They'll do until you can write to flourish and blots. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> the fateful book has come into Harry's possession. Sluggy retrieves two weather-beaten copies of Advanced Potion Making for the boys and returns to his lesson. He gestures toward the cauldrons. These substances, he tells them, are the kind of thing that newt-level students should be capable of producing, he asks if anyone can identify the potions, and guess who can? Mm-hmm. Hermione. 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 <laughs> there is, she says, Veritaserum, which compels a person to tell the truth, and which we've seen used on Barty Jr., and seen Umbridge attempt to use on students, including Harry Potter. Polyjuice Potion, which we and our friends are quite familiar with. Uh-huh. And Amortensia, the most powerful love potion known to wizards. And from the book, probably the most dangerous and powerful potion in this room. When you've seen as much of life as I have, you will not underestimate the power of obsessive love. Sluggy, always searching for talent, is impressed with Hermione's three-for-three three display. He asks if she's related to one Hector Dagworth Granger, a noted potions whiz. <laughs> no, sir. I'm Muggle-born, you see. Sluggy makes the connection. Oh-ho! One of my best friends is Muggle-born, and she's the best in our year. I'm assuming this is the very friend of whom you spoke, Harry? It is indeed. 20 points for Gryffindor. Ding, 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 ding. Right away! We can see that Slughorn's tutelage is quite a different affair from Snape's. We often lament Harry's bullheadedness when it comes to heeding Snape's counsel. But it must be said, Snape doesn't make it easy to engage. Not at all. No. 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 This display from Slughorn is instantly inviting a liquid carrot that inspires as it instructs. And remember, if you can, and I'm sure, I hope you can, (laughs) uh, that wonderful feeling when you do vibe with a teacher. It's a great feeling. It's a great feeling that first time you get a teacher who you just really hit it off with. It's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. It unlocks a lot. It really does unlock a lot. And this must be great for Harry. Potion making has been an exercise in defeat for Harry and many of his peers for five years, a time of feeling discouraged and abused. Right away, though, Slughorn's doing what Snape promised that he would in the opening speech in stone, making his students appreciate the beauty of the softly simmering cauldrons, bewitching their minds and snaring their senses. It is riveting. Fabulous stuff. Yeah. Little aside about the moment when Slughorn connects the dots about Harry praising Hermione, and Hermione's like, "Oh, Harry!" And Ron's like, "I want to fucking set it too." If you like, me. I think you're great. You know, I <laughs> obviously think that you're very talented as well. It's just nobody's. I'm not asked because I am a mediocre student. But had I been asked, I would also have said yes. Hermione is super smart. She does all my homework, basically, so it's incredible. (laughs) Amazing. The first task for the class, follow the recipe in their textbooks for the draft of living death. The first student to successfully brew the potion will receive, drumroll please, 
Very own vial of Felix Felici's street name, Liquid Luck. Ooh. Hermione literally gasps at the reveal, and Slug <gasps> was clearly anticipating this effect. He's loving this. Oh, Whoa. Yeah. The potion within was splashing about merrily. It was the color of molten gold, and large drops were leaping like goldfish above the surface, though not a particle had spilled. How charming! Yeah. The substance is extremely difficult to make, we learn, and, quote, disastrous to get wrong. It is banned in sporting events, elections, exams. But when correctly prepared, when properly legally used, it is a lucky streak in a bottle. And while under its influence, all of a person's endeavors tend to result in smashing success. This sounds damn good. Takes too much, however. Here's the twist. Here's the fine print. The result is recklessness, overconfidence. In large amounts, the potion is toxic. Slug himself says he's only used it twice in his life. Quote, two tablespoons taken with breakfast, two perfect days. Love this it. guy really knows how to My guy knows how to live. Room. Slug knows how to live. <laughs> this is seriously powerful and dangerous magic to be used rarely and with care. But the upside is absolutely scintillating. It is a rich, and it must be said, probably too powerful prize to hand over to a bunch of 16-year-olds. I think it's a little much for the teens. (laughs) (laughs) Yet there is no doubt that it's an effective motivator. Slughorn clearly has a gift for captivating and motivating his charges. The class sets feverishly to work to earn that lesson's prize. One bottle for one perfect day. 12 hours of success. Now, Harry, as we just stated, and as we all know, has never been particularly adept at potions, so he harbors no particular illusions about winning this little contest. Though there's no doubt he would love to deny Malfoy, who seems Mm -hmm. quite serious about it, undeniably intent on securing that lucky day in a way that exacerbates Harry's already roiling suspicions. Harry notices, quote, to his annoyance, that a previous owner of his textbook has scribbled copious notes All over the page. So many, in fact, that it's hard to read the actual instructions. Some of the notes actually contradict the text itself, such as, quote, crush with the flat side of silver dagger releases juice better than cutting. Harry, with nothing to lose, borrows Hermione's silver dagger. Lo and behold, the scribbler is correct. His bean positively gushes. From the book, his annoyance with the previous owner vanishing on the spot. He follows the next tip, which says to add a clockwise stir every seven counterclockwise stirs. And lo and behold, Harry's potion immediately turns the perfect pale shade of pink. And Hermione is like, yo, what the fuck is happening? What is this? Hold on. How are you cheating right now? <laughs> Harry tries to share the previous owner's intel. Hey, every seven do the... Yeah. And Hermione is like, that's not what it says in the book. <laughs> of course. Naturally. Very on brand for Hermione. Her potion, as it turns out, is quite good. It's very good. Mm-hmm. Gets a appreciative nod mm-hmm. from Sluggy. Harry's, though, perfection itself. <laughs> the clear winner, Slughorn cried <laughs> to the dungeon. Excellent and excellent, Harry. Good Lord, it's clear you've inherited <laughs> your mother's talent. She was a dab-handed potions, Lily was. Here you are, then. Here you are. One bottle of Felix Felicis, as promised, and use it well. Use it well. Where have we heard that before? Yeah. It's hard to overstate the magnitude of this moment. Harry will not only fake using the bottle in order to give Ron the confidence to succeed on the Quidditch pitch, he will actually use it to secure the memory from Sluggy, handing Dumbledore essential intel about Voldemort's Horcrux plot. Hermione's been busting her ass in each and every class, potions included, from day one. 
with the exception of divination. She right. never I, I mean, the, <laughs> at least she never, like, pretended. There. Busted her ass when she was exiting. Yes. That's for sure. Her potions, despite Snape's numerous, extremely cruel remarks, are always well-made. Harry has always been more likely to brew a cauldron of concrete than a potion, though, though, as his yes. results indicated... It's not from a lack of ability. Snape's bullying, his determination to fail Harry whenever possible, crippled Harry's ability to even potentially succeed in that class. Still, Hermione wants to know. Yeah. Come on, buddy. (laughs) What is happening today? Robert Baratheon voice. How'd you do it? How'd you do it? (laughs) (laughs) How did he win the Felix today? How did he make such a perfect potion? And eventually over dinner, he tells her and Ron about the book. Harry asks Hermione if... She thinks he cheated, and she definitely doesn't say no. Right, she's not like... (laughs) Ron, like a true pal, says, hey, he just followed a different set of instructions. We should note, by the way, this is something we talked about in our planning session. Is this book, the actual textbook, bad? We say no. It's a sign of how advanced Snape really is, what a prodigy he really is, how much he pushes always to find the most innovative, perfect solution possible. Quote, Slughorn could have handed me that book, but no. I get the one no one's ever written on. Puked on. By the look of page 52. Oh, Ron. Nothing ever goes right for Ron, does it? Not everyone's as supportive as Ron, though. Quote, hang on. Did I hear right? You've been taking orders from something someone wrote in a book, Harry? It's, it's that Jimmy's. smell from the burrow. <laughs> that tantalizing scent from the burrow. What's that? <laughs> oh, God. She's alarmed. She just so happens to know a thing or two or five about strange books that convey unexpected guidance and benefits and then maybe, maybe not benefits. Maybe, maybe you end up in the Chamber of Secrets as a near corpse with your good friend Tom. Right, which is not great. Harry insists, insists that this textbook isn't the same as the diary of his close personal friend, Tom Riddle. That's right. Quote, but you're doing what it says. Yeah, but, but, but. Hermione eager for this opening to explore whether something is nefarious here, swipes the book away and casts Specialis Revealio. Nothing. That never works. I just want to point out that that never (laughs) Never. works. Now, this book, we should note, will lead Harry to a terribly dark place later in the book as he casts the prince's homemade spells to horrifying effects leading Harry to need to stash the book away in the Room of Requirement. One more reminder in the increasingly complex web of Severus Snape character study that though he clearly had more to teach Harry than Harry ever wanted to hear, he was also a deeply flawed boy and man, sorely tempted by the darkness. But there's a long road of blind affection and defense for Harry and the prince between now and Harry depositing the book. Right here, he's already attached, and he's aggrieved by the doubts. He takes the book back, possessively, and accidentally drops it on the floor. And when he bends to pick it up, he notices an inscription. This book is the property of the Half-Blood Prince. Dun, dun, dun. Hey, that's the title of this book. Now, though Harry won't learn until the end of the sixth book that Snape is the Half-Blood Prince, we can appreciate with full clarity of the reveal in mind that Snape's tutelage as the prince And helping Harry brew this potion and thus win the liquid luck is what allows Harry to gain the intel that he needs to ultimately take down Voldemort. Again, tutelage comes in many forms. Harry, in the span of two lessons, rejects Snape's teaching and is instantly enthralled with the prince, who is, of course, Snape. These are both Snape. The face of the tutor is not always apparent, especially in the magical world. 
but the lessons can come in many forms. Chapter 10, The House of Gaunt. Yeah! Harry's love affair with the prince continues unabated, producing results that absolutely delight Sluggy and infuriate Hermione and even Ron. One lucky break was one thing. Harry rising to prodigy status because he happened to receive this sacred text. It's tough to swallow. Harry, always generous, offers to share, but Ron, taking after Arthur, can't read the writing. (laughs) (laughs) And Hermione is opposed on moral grounds, Uh despite the prince consistently generating better results than what she insists on calling the official instructions. Harry naturally wonders about the prince's real identity, as one would as he thumbs through the whole book, noting no page is left unmarked. And certain scrolls look not like amended instructions, but the prince's own spells. Further exploration, though, will have to wait. It's time for his first lesson with Dumbly. What will it be? He must have been busy, Dumbler says in greeting after asking about Harry's first week. A detention under your belt already? Good shit. That's right. (laughs) Dumbledore shifted Harry's detention next Saturday so they can proceed this evening. And what, pray tell, will they be proceeding with? Everything is where it usually is. From Fox to the portraits to the silver instruments, there's not even a clear space to duel. So what could they be doing? I'm so glad you asked. Dumbledore correctly says Harry's probably wondering just that. What's up? Quote, well, I have decided that it is time. Now that you know what prompted Lord Voldemort to try and kill you 15 years ago, for you to be given certain information. (coughs) The passage continues. There was a pause. You said at the end of last term, you were going to tell me everything, said Harry. (laughs) It was hard to keep a note of accusation from his voice. Sir, he added. (laughs) As Jason just noted, the word certain here is operative, indicating future withholding. And of course, Harry here is referencing the past. What comes next from Dumbledore is, as we will learn in The Prince's Tale, not the full truth. (laughs) Quote, and so I did. I told you everything I know. Ish. Dumbledore did not tell Harry what he had grown to suspect about the Horcruxes. Though that's what these lessons are for. Even in these lessons, however, he will not tell Harry the greatest secret of all that Harry is the final Horcrux. Much, 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 much more on that over the course of this book and the book to come. Here, Dumbledore continues, quote, from this point forth, we shall be leaving the firm foundation of fact and journeying together through the murky marshes of memory into thickets of wildest guesswork. Mm -hmm. Readers, likely of the same reaction as Harry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you're Dumbledore, so you're probably pretty sure that your guesses are right, aren't you? And the response is quintessential Albus. Naturally, I do, but as I have already proven to you, I make mistakes like the next man. In fact, being, forgive me, rather cleverer than most men, my mistakes tend to be correspondingly huger. Okay, on the one hand, there's humility at play here, the kind that, if embraced in full, could allow Dumbledore to open up even more fully to Harry, tutoring him through the facts and the guesswork alike about Harry's own standing, about the role Harry will have to play. On the other hand, though, there's hubris here albeit an uncommon variety that is Mm -hmm. anchored in self-awareness. Dumbledore does not want to hurt Harry. He doesn't want to betray him. As we'll discuss at considerable length throughout Deathly Hallows, particularly in the King's Cross chapter, Dumbledore withheld the truth from Harry not out of malice, but so that Harry would be able to truly choose to sacrifice himself in a way that ensured his victory. It's a complicated, devastating game, but 
not actually a cruel one. Dumbledore believes in Harry and has chosen tact now in these lessons that are finally beginning the shared journey of tutelage is to arm Harry not with step-by-step instructions, but with enough knowledge and wisdom to allow Harry to choose on his own. Harry asks a sweet, almost innocent question, the kind that makes you want to reach into your book and hold him in your arms, except he stinks. God, (laughs) go take a bath, will you? Brush your teeth. Will these lessons help him survive? He's willing to die, but that doesn't mean he wants to. Dumbledore says, yes, this all has a great deal to do with the prophecy. He fetches the pensive. Fuck. Yes. No fantasy story can completely avoid deus ex machina pitfalls. But when we talk about Rowling's craft, her expert craft, about how she plants seeds and waters them before the plot trees grow, about how she so often introduces magic before it serves its core function to the story, we're talking about things like this. When we first see the pensive in Goblet, it serves a key function in that book, yes. And it's certainly elemental and occlumency lessons in order, but it's really here for this and for the ultimate reveal in Hallows and before we even dive into the crucial exploration of our villain and, in time, our hero, we're primed for how the magical memory exploration works. The pensive is, of course, a teacher in its own right, allowing witches and wizards to explore their own thoughts or another's, to see patterns, to make new connections, to find new meaning. Harry's anxious when he sees it. He is... Witness some deeply unsettling shit in that stone basin, including his own father's childhood cruelty. Dumbledore, astute as always, sees Harry's unease, but he's prepared with a pep talk. Quote, this time you enter the pensive with me and, even more unusually, with permission. Ba-dum-bum! <laughs> Truly incredible. They're heading, Dumbledore says, into a memory belonging to Bob Ogden, a former employee of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. Before Ogden's death, Dumbledore tracked him down to secure his memory. One of our first real clues about how long Dumbledore has been working, truly working to uncover Voldemort's secrets, and thus the way to undo him. And here, finally, finally he's letting Harry in, guiding him. Dumbledore's struggling to pull the stopper out of the bottle containing the memory, a highly concerning sign about how his injury is hampering him. Very tough. Very tough. Harry asks if he can help. Dumbledore uses magic instead, not yet at the point he'll come to in the cave when he must lean on Harry so fully. And Harry asks again what happened to the headmaster's hand, and Dumbledore once again stalls. They dive in and land amid dazzling sunlight. They're in a country lane behind the plump, bespectacled Ogden. And as they walk, Harry sees a sign. Great Hangled in one way, little Hangled in the other. Now we know this place. This is where Voldemort rose again in the graveyard. This is home to the Riddle House. As the valley comes into view before them, Harry sees the handsome manor home atop the hill. But that's not where they're going. They veer off toward a thicket of trees and a dark home hidden among the trunks that block all the light. The house appears to be in disrepair with missing tiles on the roof and mossy walls. And Harry thinks this is maybe uninhabited, but then a window flies open, steam coming out. Ogden proceeds with trepidation, noticing a dead snake nailed to the door, which is so welcoming. (laughs) Then a man drops from a nearby tree, terrifying Ogden as he says, The words are italicized. The clues are building. We see that Ogden does not understand this man with filthy matted hair and missing teeth and eyes moving in crazy directions. A terrifying sight. Harry, however, hears him fine. You understand him, I'm sure, Harry, said Dumbledore quietly. Aha, he is speaking parcel tongue, which we know is extremely rare. 
Remember how Harry's fellow Hogwarts students reacted to his display of the ability in Ron and Hermione's ensuing words? From the book, it's not a very common gift, said Ron. Being able to talk to snakes was what Salazar Slytherin was famous for, said Hermione. That's why the symbol of Slytherin House is a serpent. Aha. Aha. Before Ogden can make any headway, the filthy man hexes him, leading nasty goo to sprout from his nose. Morphin, we hear, as an old man who looks like a, quote, powerful aged monkey, exits the home. Ogden asks this gentleman if he's Mr. Gaunt, and he is. What's more, he's willing to show us right away what kind of bigot he is. He tells Ogden he can't expect his son, Morphin, not to defend himself from, quote, busybodies, intruders, muggles, and filth. Okay, that tells us much of what we need to know. Mr. Gaunt speaks parcel tongue to his son, telling him to get into the house, no arguments. Harry's already advancing in his lesson here, hearing the meaning of the words now, but also, this time, detecting the hiss. Mr. Gaunt asks Ogden if he's a pureblood. This dude gives absolutely no fucks about showing his true colors. He's not even trying to be polite, trying to impress. He believes in this vileness, and he's not afraid to show it. Ogden says his blood status is neither here nor there, and Harry and the reader alike feel their respect swell. Ogden, it transpires, is there about Morphin's, quote, serious breach of wizarding law that morning. Inside, Harry sees Morphin singing to a snake and also another person. Gaunt's daughter, Merope, a girl in a ragged dress. A girl, we will come to learn, who mothered Voldemort. She has lank, dull hair and a plain face, the same eyes as her brother. Quote, Harry thought he had never seen a more defeated-looking person. Ogden says that the ministry has reason to believe that Morphin performed magic in front of a muggle. Merope, upon hearing this, drops a pot. Pick it up! Gaunt fell it at her. That's it, grub on the floor like some filthy muggle. What's your wand for, you useless sack of muck? Real charmer, this guy. Ogden protests against this abuse as Merope, flushed with fear and shame, tries to use magic on the pot, but instead shoots it across the room where it cracks into gaunt screams at her again. Mend it, you pointless lump, mend it. When Ogden repairs it instead, gaunt replies by calling his daughter a dirty squib. Throughout Rowling's work, both in Harry Potter with Arion Dumbledore and Fantastic Beats with Credence, we see the effects of magical beings who have their powers suppressed by trauma or abuse. Merope, as we see here, and as we learn in much greater detail later on, wasn't an obscurial, but a witch capable of performing magic, but she's not free. She's imprisoned by this mockery and abuse, bullied into doubting her own worth and ability, her powers and her happiness alike severely impacted. Gaunt has... Ample affection for his mad son, however, and truly does not understand why Ogden's there. Quote, he taught a filthy muggle a lesson. That's illegal now, is it? And Bob's like, yes, mm-hmm. correct. Nice of you to catch up. Nobody's guy. He presents a summons for a ministry hearing, and Gaunt says, do you know who you're talking to? And then he shows Ogden his hand, on which rests the, quote, ugly black stoned ring. The ring we saw Dumbledore wearing at Slughorns. The ring that Voldemort will steal and turn into a horcrux, depositing it again in the gaunt shack. The ring, unknown to Voldemort, that contains the Peveril's resurrection stone. The ring that Dumbledore will then find and briefly succumb to, suffering the death sentence-inducing curse before killing the horcrux. The ring that, here, Gaunt presents his proof beyond reproach of his worth and standing. See this? See this? He says. Mm -hmm. Know what it is? Know where it came from? Centuries it's been in our family. That's how far back we go. And pure blood all the way. Know how much I've been offered for this with the Peveril coat of arms engraved on the stone? The Peveril coat of arms! A link to the three brothers of lore. A hallow. Unbeknownst to the man holding it or the man who will make it a safeguard for his soul. Gaunt's 
not through boasting. He grabs Merope and thrusts her in Ogden's face, showing her, quote, heavy gold locket that he identifies as Slytherin's, another object that we've seen before, though we and Harry can't connect all the dots at this particular time, the locket in 12 Grimald Place. The locket that Voldemort will also make into a Horcrux, the locket that Harry and Dumbledore will retrieve from the cave, only for Harry to realize after Dumbledore's death that it's a fake, containing a note from the true retriever, R-A-B. From the book, Slytherins, yelled Gaunt. Salazar Slytherins, we're his last living descendants. What do you say to that, huh? I'd say you guys are not doing great in this fucking shitty house. Until, of course, Merope has a child with the handsome muggle from across the way. Speaking of, this muggle morphin attacked? Just as Ogden's reading the charges, we hear a horse-drawn carriage riding by, and we hear a girl deriding the, quote, eyesore that is the gaunt shack. Couldn't your father have that hovel cleared away, Tom? He addresses the girl as darling, opening a door for Morphin to taunt his sister. Darling, whispered Morphin in parcel tongue, looking at his sister. Darling, he called her, so he wouldn't have you anyway. Gaunt's horrified and questions his son, who explains that Merope, from the book, likes looking at that muggle. We learn that last night she was waiting for him to ride past. Is it true, said Gaunt, in a deadly voice, advancing a step or two toward the terrified girl. My daughter, pure-blooded descendant of Salazar Slytherin, hankering after a filthy, dirty, vain muggle. Merope's overcome with terror, as Morphin says. But I got him, father. So this is the muggle he hexed. Handsome Tom, the muggle Merope loves, the muggle with whom she'll create our Tom Riddle, Lord Voldemort. The scene descends into chaos, with Gaunt attacking Merope, then Morphin attacking Ogden, who flees for his life. At this point, Dumbledore pulls Harry out of the memory, and Harry's first question, touchingly, is about the girl. Was she okay? Dumbledore drops the reveal. Yes, she survived. Ogden went for ministry reinforcements, who overpowered father and son alike. Morphin got three years. Marvolo, six months. Record scratch. Did you say Marvolo, motherfucker? Mm -hmm. What? That's right, said Dumbledore, smiling in approval. I'm glad to see you're keeping up coaching Harry always with this reinforcement. That old man, Dumbledore tells Harry, was Voldemort's grandfather, the last of the once great gaunts, reduced to squalor, possessing only a couple of priceless heirlooms that he valued more than his own daughter. A daughter, who Harry realizes, working through it all, quote, was, sir, does that mean she was Voldemort's mother? It does, said Dumbledore, and it so happens that we also had a glimpse of Voldemort's father. I wonder whether you noticed. Think about this phrasing. I wonder whether you noticed. We are getting such a great glimpse here into Dumbledore's mm -hmm. teaching style, leading Harry to water, but making sure Harry knows how to drink. And here, Harry hydrates. The handsome muggle on the horse. Very good indeed, said Dumbledore, beaming. Yes, that was Tom Riddle Sr., the handsome muggle who used to go riding past the Gaunt Cottage and for whom Merope Gaunt cherished a secret, burning passion. Ah, the obsessive love that Slughorn warned about. Harry can't believe they wound up in love, but Dumbledore says that Harry's forgetting that Merope was a witch. From the book, I do not believe that her magical powers appeared to their best advantage when she was being terrorized by her father. When he was in jail, though, she came into her own. Dumbledore, again asking Harry questions instead of just giving him answers, training him to refine his deductive powers, to look for the right questions so that he can then find the right answers. Asks if Harry can think of any way she could have secured his love the imperious curse Harry offers, or a love potion. Dumbledore is inclined to think it was the latter. From the book, I'm sure it would have seemed more romantic to her. A great scandal ensued in Hangleton, with the squire's son running off with the tramp's daughter. Marvolo died shortly after his return from jail, and Merope died too. 
Tom returned to the village shortly after their marriage, talking of being, quote, hoodwinked and, quote, taken in, leaving her while pregnant. Dumbledore suspects that Merope stopped giving him the love potion that she, quote, could not bear to continue enslaving him by magical means. Maybe she thought he'd love her back or at least stay for the baby. Neither of that proved true. We'll learn in mere chapters that she died after delivering her baby at an orphanage, naming him after the father he'd one day return to murder. Much to Frank Bryce's chagrin. Tough stuff for Frank. Yeah. Harry asks if it's important to know all this about Voldemort's past. It's like, Harry... Spend years asking oh for God. Dumbledore to tell you things, and then he literally takes this you into <laughs> a memory from the past. And you're like, "Is this? Does this matter? Do you use math in the real world? How, in other words, Harry's asking, is this tutelage from Dumbledore gonna help me win? Very important, I think," says Dumbledore, mm-hmm. adding, in answer to Harry's next query, it has everything to do with the prophecy. Though the Horcrux reveal is many hundreds of pages away, we are already on the road to learning about the boy who became Voldemort, our first memory in a series of memories that make this book such a captivating journey into the making of a villain. Learning about what and where and who Voldemort came from, about what he was like, what he prized, what he lusted after, and, crucially, what he might have done to attain that. Harry is confused by Dumbledore's lack of forthrightness. When isn't he? But (laughs) this teaser will have to suffice for now. Dumbledore gives Harry permission to tell Ron and Hermione what he's learned, but tells Harry that they must not repeat it. Quote, it would not be a good idea if word got around how much I know or suspect about Lord Voldemort's secrets. One of Dumbledore's edges, which will become one of Harry's in time, is that Voldemort has corrupted his soul so completely that he cannot even feel when pieces of it are destroyed. Stealth is an aid. Secrets and lies. Just as Harry's leaving the office, he spies the ring with the cracked black stone and pieces together both that it's Gaunt's ring from Ogden's memory and that it's the ring Dumbledore was wearing at Slughorn's. Quote, I acquired it very recently, said Dumbledore, a few days before I came to fetch you from your aunt and uncle's, in fact. That would be around the time you injured your hand then, sir? Around that time, yes, Harry. He'll get no more out of the headmaster tonight. But though he doesn't fully see it yet, in one evening, he has already gained more information about Voldemort's past realities and thus future vulnerabilities than in his prior 16 years. Chapter 11, Hermione's helping hand. Good news, bad news, Juan Juan. Good news, first. You have several free periods this year. Bad news. You're going to need those periods to study, my guy, because the post-owl course load is intense. Lessons are so demanding, in fact, that even Hermione, Hermione, has to ask questions. Too bad she doesn't have a textbook filled with the scribbled tutelage of some mysterious past owner. With the Half-Blood Prince's book under his arm, Harry has become an instant potions prodigy. Lily would be proud. Hermione, however, still considers the book and its treasure trove of tips and advanced techniques basically cheating. When Harry receives his new potions textbook in the outpost, Hermione says, Oh, good! Now you can give that graffitied copy back. Harry, for his part, goes as far as to magically switch the cover of the new book with the Half-Blood Princess. Commitment. Which, listen, is a tacit admission that he is in fact kind of cheating. Also in the outpost, the latest edition of The Prophet. Anyone we know dead? Asked Ron in a determinedly casual voice. He posed the same question every time Hermione opened her paper. Yikes, guys. No, but the paper has brought some shocking news. Stan Shunpike, the verbose conductor of the night bus, you remember him, just got popped by the ministry for being a Death Eater. Ooh, maybe he was imperious, says Ron. 
Likely not, Hermione says, reading the article, noting that it says he was overheard in a pub talking about the Death Eaters' plans. If only, gosh, if only, other people with known connections to the Death Eaters who were overheard saying Death Eater shit were similarly incarcerated. Mm. Wouldn't it be great? What a world. Harry is doubtful that Stan is guilty. But after months, arguably years, of prevaricating, the ministry under Scrimgeour is finally cracking down on the likes of Stan Shunpike. Just not on known Death Eaters who say Death Eater shit who have money and connections. Hermione points out that after the weak-willed fudge regime, the ministry needs to be seen as acting against threats. She says, people are terrified. You know, the Patil twins' parents want them to go home, and Eloise Midgen has already been withdrawn. Her father picked her up last night. Ron points out that there is no safer place at Hogwarts. After all, Dumbledore is here, and the castle's security has been upgraded by him personally. Hmm. But do they have Dumbledore really from the book? I don't think we've got him all the time, said Hermione, very quietly glancing toward the staff table over the top of the prophet. Haven't you noticed his seat's been empty as often as Hagrid's this past week? Order business, Hermione theorizes. You know, we joke about there being no safer place, but at this point, it is basically true. Uh-huh. The mother of a student they all know was recently found dead. The student, Hannah Abbott, hasn't been back to class. Ministry pamphlets and welcome feast pleas are all well and good, but the most effective teacher always is experience, and the horrors now unfolding around them in real time are impossible to ignore. It's all looking serious, isn't it, Hermione says. And yet, listen, you got to fly through the air on brooms, no matter how serious it gets. You just, you got to. Last year, Harry showed that he could tutor his peers as the leader of the DA. Will that leadership ability, that teaching ability, translate on the Quidditch pitch? That remains to be seen. But certainly, Harry will have no shortage of opportunities to convey his Quidditch wisdom because his burgeoning fame has caused an absolute mob to show up for Gryffindor tryouts. A large portion of Gryffindor house, house meaning first years to seventh years, which is not allowed. Right, it's not, unless, but they're unless Harry. you're a favorite of McGonagall's. I mean, listen, Harry did it, so why not go <laughs> out anyway? They've all showed up, as well as Harry will soon discover a number of Hufflepuffs and even a few Ravenclaws. <laughs> just absolutely hysterical. It's bizarre. Really funny and strange. <laughs> they just don't want to look at yeah. the chosen one in action. There are a shocking number of flat-out groupies there giggling, trying to break off a piece of that chosen one. Yeah, that sweet chosen one. Including an especially thirsty Ramilda Vane. She wants that shit. Though I will say, Harry, a little bit of a thirst trap artist here, <laughs> holding an open tryout that anyone could attend. That's really true. That's great point. <laughs> What? what? I don't know where they came from. Who knows why these? Hello, ladies. Ramona, great to see you here. I mean, I don't know. I can't stop people from showing up. As Hermione said mere pages ago in this chapter, Harry's never been more fanciable, which leads to a just marvelous sequence. Tough, tough. Ron gags. Ron. <laughs> gags. And hearing Hermione call Harry fanciable. And then, in short, Hermione notes that Harry still has those scars from Umbridge. And Ron's like, I have scars from brains. Remember the brain? Remember the tentacle brain? And then Hermione's like, Harry got so tall. And Ron, and here's the exact wording from the book. I'm tall, said Ron inconsequentially. (laughs) Inconsequentially, just to savagely 
delicious dig here from J.K. toward Ron. At least Lavender smiled at Ron on his way down to the Quidditch pitch. Fucking brain boy. She is looking at brain boy. Wants to wrap her brainy tentacles around him. Oh, my God. Bit by bit. Drill by arduous drill. The wheat is separated from the chaff. Among those who make the cut, Katie Bell, of course, who should have been captain. It's ridiculous. And Ginny, a scoring machine. And you're free to interpret that any way you'd like. Ginny is scoring on the pitch (laughs) and elsewhere. Indeed. And what's this? Wadawan Weasley, who saved five of five penalties to win the keeper job. The student Ron beat out? None other. The Cormac McGlagan. The young man with connections to the ministry who Harry knows is a member of the Slug Club. McGlagan, skilled and armed with an ideal keeper's build to boot, only saved four of five. And he is so salty that he demands hotly that Harry let him go again. He's all like, and Ron's sister gave me yeah, a, a weak one. And Harry's like, let me tell you, she doesn't give breaks. She doesn't go, she doesn't go soft. <laughs> say, I guess she goes hard no matter what. Harry refuses, and McGlagan storms off, cursing under his breath. Ron is drinking in his victory. Hermione congratulating him heartily. Lavender sulking off grumpily when she sees that Hermione's got Ron's attention. Ron says, I thought I was going to miss that fourth penalty. Tricky shot. <laughs> Ron loves to boast after yeah, he's successful. T- that was a tough one. Yes, yes, you were magnificent, said Hermione, looking amused. I was better than that McGlagan, anyway, says Ron in a highly satisfied voice. <laughs> Did you see him lumbering off in the wrong direction on his fifth? Looked like he'd been confunded. To Harry's surprise, Hermione turned a very deep shade of pink at these words. Dun, dun, dun! We will soon discover that Hermione did indeed confund McGlagan. Shocking. This, from the person who has been criticizing Harry for using a marked-up textbook and who will go on to basically threaten to send him to Azkaban when she thinks he spiked Ron's juice with Felix Felicis. Shocking stuff! She, From I, Hermione Granger. Unbelievable. We try out to finish our friends as planned. Head to Hagrid's. Harry shares a very sweet moment with Buckbeak, asking if he's missing him, meaning serious. Beautiful moment. Their half-giant buddy has been avoiding them, and he gives them a surprisingly cold reception here, slamming the door in their face and then refusing to open it until Harry yells that he's going to blast it open. I'm a teacher! Harry, a teacher, Potter! How dare you turn to break down my door? I'm sorry, sir, said Harry, emphasizing the last word as he stowed his wand inside his robes. Hagrid looks stunned. Since when have you called me, sir? Since when have you called me Potter? This is a wonderful icebreaker and the kind they need, and also a good reminder. Uh Even though Hagrid is a teacher, he's never really occupied that role for Harry, Ron, and Hermione. He's taught them plenty, but always through friendship, through mentorship. That's a much harder thing to walk away from and not something they're willing to risk. It's also, of course, why Hagrid is so hurt. Just as our friends feared, Hagrid is upset about their disinterest in care of magical creatures. Hermione, who just confunded a dude so her future boyfriend could make the varsity team, flat out lies to Hagrid's face. (laughs) We really wanted to carry on with care of magical creatures, you know. Hagrid, who was not born yesterday, does not buy this for a second. Because, like, listen, if you wanted to take care, you'd take care. Uh Uh-huh. You didn't want to take care, so you didn't take care. Still baffled by it's this. It's not that hard. I just don't When our it. friends notice a bucket full, appallingly, of maggots, they ask, what are these for? They're for Aragog, the giant spider king we first met in Chamber of Secrets. Hagrid, you'll recall, is close to the beast, and his intimate relationship with Aragog was why he was expelled from Hogwarts all those years ago. Hagrid bursts into tears. Aragog, he says, is dying. 
Our friends offer to help, but there's nothing they can do, Hagrid says. It's simply too dangerous to go over there. Eventually, Aragog's death will prove vital to the story and in for Harry and Slughorn to make their way to Hagrid's where drink and truth will flow in equal measure. On their way back into the castle, they pass a still disoriented <laughs> McGlagan struggling to enter the Green Hall. Hermione, it's just honestly still shocking. And, like, this is a guy she's going to go on a date with just to piss off Ron. It's fucking unbelievable. My goodness. What tangled lives we lead. Let me just also point out to you that Hermione has now dated three Quidditch players. Listen, she has a type. She has a type. After they witness this, Harry, out of earshot of Ron, pulls Hermione aside and is like, what's up? And he gets a confession from her. And then they run into Sluggy. He says, Harry, Harry, just the man I was hoping to see. And he invites him to dinner. Having another slug club party. What do you say to a spot of supper tonight in my rooms instead? McGlagan will be there, we learn, assuming, of course, he can figure out how to get there. He's busy, like, (laughs) peeing in his bed because he thinks he's in the toilet. Oh, God. In the toilet with Graham Montague. Tough stuff. (laughs) Poor, Poor sweet Graham. Other folks will be there, of course, including one Melinda Bobbin. Are you familiar? Family owns a chain of apothecaries. Oh, exciting. And of course, if she'll be so good as to grace the slug with her presence, Hermione Granger. I can't come, Professor, said Harry at once. I've got a detention with Professor Snape. Sluggy crestfallen says, we'll see if Snape will reschedule. But Harry and the reader know there is no shot. That's not happening. <laughs> yeah. Snape did it for Dumbledore, but he's not hey. fucking doing it for anyone else. Hey, is it okay if you reschedule Potter's detention so he can come to my party? <laughs> and Snape just like, what? Uh, no. Ron, meanwhile, is understandably feeling very left out. Quote, it was as though Ron was not present. Slughorn may be a very gifted and engaging lecturer and potion maker, but... His leadership has limits here. He is not great with social graces, at least not with the people he deems beneath his notice. It's a tough spot for Juan Juan, being best friends with two truly extraordinary people. After dinner, back in Gryffindor Tower, our friends are lounging around and Hermione's reading the latest prophet. This one mentions Arthur. Oh, look, your dad's in here, Ron. He's all right, she added quickly. Ferran had looked around in alarm. It just says he's been to visit the Malfoy's house. Now she quotes... The second search of the Death Eater's residence does not seem to have yielded any results. Arthur Weasley of the Office for the Detection and Confiscation of Counterfeit Defensive Spells and Protective Objects. Jesus. The O-D-C-C-D-S-P-O said that his team has been acting upon a confidential tip-off. That would be Harry's tip, of course, about Draco's suspect behavior in Borgen and Burks and his attempt to get something fixed. If whatever it is isn't at Malfoy Manor, could Draco have it at school. Not likely, Hermione notes, because every student was searched for dark items upon disembarking from the Hogwarts Express, and even outposts now are being scrutinized. Harry, given his delayed entry, wasn't aware. They're wondering over this when Demelza Robbins, Gryffindor's new chaser, comes with a message for Harry. Snape says tonight's detention, of course, is a go from the book. He says you're to come to his office at half past eight tonight to do your detention, or no matter how many party invitations you've received. And he wanted you to know you'll be sorting out rotten flobberworms from good ones to use in potions. And and he says there's no need to bring protective gloves. Oh, my God. Talk about a lesson, guys. Snape never stops teaching. Mal, see this? See this? Know what it is? Know where it came from? Yes? Good. In that case, please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads. 
and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the Gaunt family. The Gaunt family existed at the intersection of two immensely powerful wizarding names. On one side, the Gaunts descended from Salazar Slytherin himself, the haughty pureblood and Hogwarts founder. And from this ancestry, they retained many of his traits, such as the ability to speak Parseltongue. On the other side, they descended from Cadmus Peverell, good old Cadmus. Love Cadmus. The middle of the three brothers from the Beetle Tail, who gained from his encounter with death the Resurrection Stone. It is through this side that Tom Riddle, a gaunt descendant, and Harry Potter, a descendant of the third cloak-owning Peverell brother, Ignotus, are related. Good friend Tom, indeed. Good relative Tom. Tom doesn't quite fit the true gaunt profile, though, despite his beliefs often conforming to the family's outlook. For hundreds of years, the Gaunts were rich and powerful, unlike orphan Tom. And young Tom's status as a half-blood wizard would have been anathema to his ancestors, who were fanatical about the family maintaining its purity. The Gaunts even went so far as to frequently intermarry among cousins, some Thronesian shit here, both to maintain their perfectly pure-blood reputation and to ensure the passage of Salazar Slytherin's traits to future generations. Although they never fully fulfilled Slytherin's vision, the Gaunts attempted to help over the years, such as by passing on the secret of Slytherin's hidden chamber. In the 18th century, Corvinus Gaunt concealed the entrance behind a sink. We know all about that sink. When Hogwarts decided to stop vanishing its shit and install indoor plumbing. Two centuries later, of course, our good friend Tom took that process a few steps further. Not the shit vanishing part, to be clear. Though he discovered the Chamber of Secrets after tracing his heritage back to Slytherin himself, not specifically through the Gaunts. By the 20th century, though, by the time Bob Ogden encountered the Gaunts in a shack outside Hangleton, the Gaunts were in despair. Centuries of inbreeding had corrupted the family gene pool, and their one-time penchant for extravagance had left the remaining members poor and vengeful, growing ever angrier about the evolution of wizarding norms. Morphin and Merope represented the last generation to bear the Gaunt name. Interestingly, the Gaunt family had itself played a crucial role in this evolution in the wizarding world at large via the founding of Ilvermorny, the North American School of Magic, which is itself a thrilling tale. In the early 17th century, a pureblood witch named Isolt, Sare, was orphaned at the age of five, but she was rescued from the fire that consumed her parents by her mother's estranged sister, Gormleth Gaunt, who raised young Isolt like her own child. But as Isolt grew older, she made a shocking discovery. Gormleth was responsible for the tragic fire, as she believed the only way to raise Isolt, the, quote, right way, and stop her from caring for muggles, or worse, marrying one, was to take her in. She prevented Isolt from attending Hogwarts because it was impure, and she used dark magic to enforce her cooperation at home in many ways, not unlike the life her distant relation, Merope, suffered centuries later. But Isolt was resourceful. And at the age of 17, she stole her captor's wand, cut off her hair to disguise herself as a boy, Arya Stark style there, hi Ari, and fled for the new world on the Mayflower. In the new colony of Massachusetts, after a long and winding series of encounters with magical creatures, she happened upon a pair of orphaned magical children. Having missed out on her own opportunity to attend a wizarding school, she created Ilvermorny in a small cabin. Eventually, the school grew as more and more magical folk heard about the opportunity for magical education. And Isolt married a nice muggle colonist she befriended in the course of caring for her pupils. 
Eventually, though, Gormlaith learned about her niece's escapades and tracked her down, intending to kill her for sullying the family's blood purity. She snuck toward the Overmorning Cottage in the dead of night and uttered a single, powerful word in parcel tongue, rendering Esalt's wand, Gormlaith's old wand, inactive. This wand, it turns out, had been built with a fragment of a basilisk horn as its core and once belonged to Salazar Slytherin himself. And it had this failsafe known only to its true possessor. Man, everything we learned about Wandalore is so cool. Gormlaith was eventually killed by one of the creatures Esalt had befriended. And Esalt, who didn't know how to reactivate the wand, buried it. It's the last reminder of her miserable childhood next to the growing Ilvermorny grounds. What happened next was extraordinary. As Rowling writes on Pottermore, quote, within a year, an unknown species of snakewood tree had grown out of the earth on the spot where the wand was buried. It resisted all attempts to prune or kill it. But after several years, the leaves were found to contain powerful medicinal properties. This tree seemed testament to the fact that Slytherin's wand, like his scattered descendants, encompassed both noble and ignoble. The very best of him seemed to have migrated to America. Isolde and her muggle partner had two daughters. One was a squib, and the other refused to bear children, as she was determined not to continue the line of Slytherins or Gaunts any longer. Little did she know that the line continued to cross the pond, yielding ever more tragic results. Jason? Yeah! I was in the hospital wing when they held trials. Ate a pound of doxy eggs for a bet. Why would you do that? Because McGlagan told me to. But I'm back! So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Prince chapters 8 through 11. Woo! Because seven remains. The most powerfully magical number, you go first. Number one, as Harry observes Draco miming his attack on him, Harry thinks, quote, what he would not give to fight Malfoy one-on-one. Well, he'll get his chance in the boys' bathroom later in the book when he battles the emotional Malfoy and nearly kills him after inadvertently using dark magic by unleashing the dreaded Septum Sempra. This stretch of chapters begins with Harry's face bloodied by Malfoy, but Harry will badly bloody Malfoy soon. Number two. Snape's mockery of Tonks' love-induced Patronus change is particularly disappointing in light of what we will learn in Deathly Hallows, that Snape's Patronus also was because of love. His Patronus is a doe for Lily, fueled even all these years later by his longing for her. Speaking of Patronus foreshadowing here, the message system that we see will prove vital in Deathly Hallows when Kingsley's lynx Patronus arrives at Bill and Floor's wedding with an urgent warning. The ministry has fallen. Scrimgeour is dead. They are coming. Number three. Harry's obsession with Draco's quest doesn't quite dominate these chapters quite as heavily as it does in other stretches, but there is a key occurrence, as we'll later learn. Draco's able to mask his lookouts using Polyjuice Potion, which he swipes from Slughorn during their first Newt Potions lesson. Number four. Lots of Amortentia goodness to discuss. First, the potion. We learn. Smells different to each person based on what attracts each of us. So Harry, as we've already talked about, smells something flowery he thought he might have smelled at the burrow. And then, just a few pages later, Mm. he sees Ginny and thinks he, quote, caught a sudden waft of that flowery smell he had picked up in Slughorn's dungeon. So much Harry Ginny foreshadowing in the beginning of this book. We get other hints in these chapters about Harry's budding affection, including him watching Ginny and Arnold in the common room. But what he smells from the love potion is the biggest. Hermione, meanwhile, says, while answering Slughorn's question, that she smells freshly mown grass and fresh parchment. But 
cuts herself off before revealing the third smell. These passages were heavy fodder for shipping theorizing, and readers rightly speculated in the wait between Prince and Hallows that Hermione stopped herself from revealing the third smell because it would have tipped her hand. It would have shown how she felt about Ron. Correct. In a 2007 Bloomsbury chat, J.K. Rowling revealed that the third smell was Ron's hair. Maybe unlike Harry, Ron bathes. Also, Slug labels the potion, as we discussed, the most dangerous in the room. And we see in light of what happens with Merope and Tom Sr., and also with Romilda and Ron, obviously Harry was the target there, how right Slughorn was. Number five, is Trelawney good? Trelawney's prediction with the cards and what it foreshadows, there are various interpretations, but clearly it is something notable. We must come to the conclusion that when it counts, Trey is good. Recall. Two of spades, conflict, she murmured as she passed the place where Harry crouched hidden. Seven spades, an ill omen. Ten of spades, violence. Knave of spades, a dark young man, possibly troubled. One who dislikes the questioner. And later, the tower card. So clearly, conflict, the battle, perhaps. An ill omen. What do we think that is? I'm not sure, but something. Violence. I mean, there's obviously a murder and a battle takes place. Mm-hmm. Knave of spades, a dark young man, possibly troubled. One who dislikes the questioner. Could that be Draco? When she says to Harry later, the lightning struck tower calamity disaster coming near all the time. It's like, oh my God, chill. Chill. Trey is good. That's my take. Trey is good. When it counts. When it counts. If it's a very peaceful time in the world and nothing's really going on, she's not really great. When war is raging and the sherry is flowing, she's on. Yeah. When she's stinking of cooking sherry. (laughs) Pay attention, guys. Number six. When our friends are lamenting their homework load, Ron says, quote, and we're supposed to be practicing that Aguamenshi charm from Flitwick. Harry clearly practiced because he will use it successfully to fill the goblet in the cave with water to try to quench Dumbledore's lethal thirst. Sadly, though, the magical defenses in place cause the water to vanish before Dumbledore can take a sip, ensuring that Harry will have to reach into the water of the lake, thereby activating the Inferi, just as Voldemort had planned. Number seven, years after the Ogden memory in the pensive, Tom Riddle will arrive in Little Hangleton to learn about his past after discovering the relationship between Merope and Tom Sr. Our good friend Tom uh-huh. goes on a little murder spree, killing Tom Riddle Sr. and his family, then later frames Morphin for the crime with the wizarding police. Many in the town will later come to believe that Frank Bryce, the gardener, was responsible for those crimes. But that will never be able to be proved because the killing curse leaves no traces. Mal. Yeah. It's not Quidditch that's popular. It's today's champion. He's never been more interesting, frankly. He's never been more fanciful. God. The scars, the height. Wow. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Potions Master and Stink Lord and Thirst Trap. <laughs> Harry James Potter. Harry! Look, Harry my boy is. Harry my boy! Thanks to corruption, rampant corruption, Quidditch captain now, and he is. Not sure if you've heard us say it 30 times by now, but he's more fanciable than ever. Also, much more importantly, Dumbledore's finally making good on his word, in his way at least, to tell Harry what he knows to share with him, to illuminate, to bring him in. And in their first lesson, Harry learns an incredible amount of information about Voldemort's 
history and, though he doesn't yet know where it's heading, starting to learn about the Horcruxes. He's great at potions now. Yes, he is. How about that? Yes, it's due in no small part because of the Half-Blood Prince's book and the fact that Sluggy is being super supportive about everything. But listen, this is a real development in Harry's school career. And because he's now good at it, he's actually appreciating potions, too. And he's gaining his confidence. And we should note, wins the Felix Felicis. Absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. Literally allows him to retrieve the memory. The key memory from Slughorn. Well, friends, when you've seen as many episodes as we have, you will not underestimate the power. Power. Of obsessive podcasting. Thanks, as always, to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, for their daily dose of luck. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey. And that you'll join us again tomorrow. We will be discussing Prince, chapters 12 through 15. Mm-hmm. Till then, remember, we enjoy acid pops. Give me another try. What are you talking about, McClagan? You went. Ginny didn't even really try, okay? She gave him an easy save. No, she didn't. You think she goes easy on people? She doesn't go easy. She never goes easy on me. God. She just fucking looks hard. Constantly hard. Sometimes I just want to be like, can we just be loving tonight? Can we just cuddle or something? Can we just be like, just really soft and warm and loving? She's like, no. (laughs) And she fucking grabs me by the hair and like shoves me down. Slapping me in the face. Makes me call her. Ginny wobbles. What does that even mean? I can't, I can't even say that. I think she goes easy, McClellan. She doesn't go easy. Jesus Christ. <laughs> she never goes easy.